On December 25th in 1914, during the very beginning of World War I, there was something called the Christmas Truce. So nobody knows exactly what started, um, but the men in the trenches on both sides, the Germans, the English, the, um, the French, laid down their rifles, they crossed into no man's land, they exchanged little gifts, they sang songs together, and they even engaged in a soccer game. You can see this is wonderful. This is an example of peace in a time of war. And yet, just the very next day, all of these men took up their weapons again and began shooting at each other. And at the end of World War I, you all remember what they called the war. So some people called it the Great War, but people said it was the war to end all wars. This was the last one. We had seen how terrible humanity could be, and we could never go down that road again. And yet, we know that the, that the seeds for World War II were sowed at the end of World War I. It feels to me that much of the peace that this world offers is very much like this Christmas truce. It's beautiful when it happens, but it's temporary and it's short-lived. And maybe it's because the world has a different definition for peace than what we have. So often, when we have a conflict with somebody, even as we get over that conflict, the seeds for the next conflict are sowed in that uneasy peace that follows. We haven't really laid down our arms, not permanently. We haven't really decided to move on, or they haven't. We have at best a truce. And so this morning, we're going to talk about peace. Peace is one of the fruit of the Spirit. Um, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. The Greek word used here is eirene, um, or irene, or something like that. Anyway, I don't speak Greek. Um, it's all Greek to me, I guess. Um, and it seems to refer to health, wholeness, and inner tranquility. And it's something that happens when all the parts are working together. So maybe like a, a well-tuned machine just humming along. Um, and when it starts making funny noises and you have to um, bring it down to the shop, you know, that's um, an absence of peace in your um, vehicle. Uh, the Hebrew word used throughout the Old Testament is shalom. And you all have heard that word, shalom is a word that means um, peace and health. And um, is a, it reminded me a little bit like aloha. I don't know what aloha means, but, uh, but Hawaiian people use aloha for hello and goodbye. And Jewish people do the same thing with um, shalom. When they see people, they say shalom. And when they say goodbye to people, they say shalom. So, um, but in studying this, shalom also means wholeness or completeness. It's a word that's used almost 400 times in the Old Testament. Um, from what I can tell, 397 times, if you want the exact number. And the Old Testament made it clear that God is the source of shalom. Judges 6.24, then Gideon built an altar there and called it, the Lord is peace. And that Lord is peace um, is um, Yahweh Shalom. Shalom is one of the key aspects of the Torah. It says, her ways are ways of gentleness and all her paths are shalom. 
And we know that shalom is broken in the Garden of Eden. God is the source of shalom and the separation of men and women and all of creation from God that happened there with the fall was what broke our shalom. God is still the source of shalom and all of creation desires this thing and cannot achieve it. And so I would ask you this morning, is not the church the one place on earth where shalom should be present? It's the one place where wholeness, completeness, perfection as it is possible on earth should be there. So many years ago, Cain asked the question, am I my brother's keeper? And he was asking maybe what we would ask today, am I responsible for my brother's shalom? And I would say that within the church we are. As much as we are able to, we have a responsibility to achieve our brother's wholeness, his completeness, his perfection. And in the same way, he has the same responsibility for us. That is what the church is about. And it's important to remember that all of the fruit of the Spirit are action words. Peace is not a passive thing. So, is a log at peace? Well, it's not at war, right? Um, very few people are offended by logs. Um, they, they, um, and yet, at the same time, they're not, they're, not, they're not really in a state of completeness or, or perfection or relationship with anybody. And so, you know, hermits, in a sense, could be said to, to have peace, maybe. Um, at least peace with other people. They don't have any relationships with other people. What difference could it make? And yet, I think that they're missing something. Peace involves an active work of God's Spirit in our hearts, producing wholeness that we then pass on to other people. And I'm just going to repeat that, because I think that is, as I've been studying on that, I think this is really the, the crucial part of it. Peace is the active work of God's Spirit on our hearts, producing wholeness that we then have to pass on to other people. So that's kind of a way of introduction. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about peace in the Old Testament, peace in the New Testament, and then we're going to talk um, a little bit about peace with God, peace with other people, and peace within ourselves, um, and focusing mostly in that time on peace with other people. I told Milo this morning I probably could have preached two different messages at least on this, um, probably more than that, um, and, um, and not exhaust the subject. So, peace in the Old Testament. And I think we think of the Old Testament as a time when Jews were constantly at war, which it seems like they were. I mean, they, they're... Um, Breaks were, were much smaller than the times whenever there was something bad going on. And yet we can still see God revealing his desire for peace for his people in a variety of ways. Exodus 14, verses 13 and 14. And this is um, the Israelites at the Red Sea. So they are being chased by the Egyptians. They are in danger. And um, they don't know what's going to happen. And Moses said unto the people, Fear ye not, Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will show to you today. For the Egyptians, whom you have seen today, you shall see them no, again no more forever. The Lord shall fight for you, 
and you shall hold your peace. And the point here was that they didn't need to worry. The Israelites were not a great people. God tells them that over and over again. You weren't the smartest people. You weren't the greatest people. And we could probably say that about us here at Bethel this morning. We're not the most wonderful people. We're not the wealthiest or the, or the most famous or anything like that. But we don't need to worry because our God is greater. And he will de- protect us. He will take care of us. And he will lead us in the right paths. And so Israel could have peace even when they were facing um, the threat of an enemy and not because they had weapons that they were going to break out and, and go to town on the Egyptian chariots, but because God was going to take care of them. Psalm 94, verses 16 through 23 says, Who will rise up for me against the evildoers? So, um, you know, the, the concept of the Israelites being challenged by, uh, by the people around Unless the Lord had been, or who will stand up for me against the workers of iniquity? Unless the Lord had been my help, my soul had almost dwelt in silence. When I said, my foot slippeth, thy mercy, O Lord, held me up. And the multitude of my thoughts within me, thy comforts delight my soul. Shall the throne of iniquity have fellowship with thee, which frameth mischief by a law? They gather themselves together against the soul of the righteous and condemn the innocent blood. But the Lord is my defense. The Lord is the rock of my refuge. And he shall bring upon them their own iniquity and shall cut them off in their own wickedness. Yea, the Lord our God shall cut them off. And there are many other psalms where the psalmist questions the prosperity of the wicked and the threat to the righteous. And each one of them, the poet comes to the same conclusion. God is the source of our peace and security. And he may enact that peace in different ways. He may protect us in different ways, but he is the one who is in charge. And that's a blessing and should give us peace. I'm going to read a couple more passages here. Um, Well, let's read one and then we will just touch on another one because I I don't want to go too long here. Isaiah 57, verses 15 through 21 For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high holy place with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. For I will not contend forever, neither will I always be always wroth. And he went on frowardly in the way of his heart. I have seen his ways and will heal him. I will lead him also and restore comforts unto him and to his mourners. I create the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace to him that is far off and to him that is near, saith the Lord, and I will heal him. But the wicked are like a troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. There is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. And I think the the point here is that the Israelites were not going to experience peace simply because they were Jewish because they were circumcised, even because they were following um, some of the the rituals that were commanded for them. In the same way, we could say this morning, there is no special benefit to being a member of a Mennonite church that's going to grant you peace. There's no special family that you're a part of or, or things that you can surround yourself with that are going to give you peace. Peace comes because 
you are enacting mercy and justice and righteousness within your law, your lives. And maybe part of the reason why so few people today have these things, um, have peace, is because they don't have these other things present in their lives. Isaiah 61, 1 through 3, I'm not going to read that, um, but it speaks of the fact that Jesus was to bring peace. This is the, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me passage. You'll remember Jesus um, opening the scroll of the law and reading this passage and made it clear that he was going to be the source for, pe- for peace for, um, for the people. And maybe just one last thing is that David was not able to br- build a temple on. We know that he was not because he was a man of war. His son Solomon's name derives from the same word um, shalom. So I think um, Solomon in, in Hebrew is shlomo, which... Um, which um, means peace. So all of this is pointing forward to the Messiah who will build his kingdom not through war, but through a changing of the hearts of men. So peace in the New Testament. Jesus spoke of peace frequently, um, and I've read over John chapter 14 a bunch of times just in preparation for this, thinking about it. And I'm not going to read the whole of John 14 this morning, but I would just encourage you to read that. It is full of so much blessing. Um, But there's some things that Jesus doesn't say in that passage. He doesn't say, I will de-stress your life. That's what a lot of people say. Um, Abundant life people will say, you know, that's that's what Jesus is going to do for you. You name it and claim it, and he he will just take the stress right away. He doesn't say, I will bless you with so much money that you never need to worry about bills again. He doesn't say, I will make everyone around you love you so much that you never have to worry about interpersonal relationships again. All those things would be wonderful, wouldn't they? And we'd have a line going around our church if we could offer that. And yet, we know he doesn't do that. It is clear that material things don't bring either peace or joy. And second, that Jesus did not die to give us that stuff. This is an amazingly shallow reading of the gospel. And I remember uh, when I was in Paoli, uh, there was an emergency room doctor who was very well-to-do. He had a very up-to-date red sports car. He had lots of women. He had just different things. And then one night he went home and he shot himself. It was as clear that all of that stuff that the world says brings peace brought him nothing. It was heartbreaking. Nobody knew on the outside how much turmoil was inside. And yet he clearly had no peace. John 14, 23 through 29. Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. He that loveth me not keepeth not my sayings, and the word which ye hear is mine, but the Father's which sent me is not mine, but the Father's which sent me. These things have I spoken unto you, being yet present with you. But the Comforter, which is the Holy Spirit, Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things, and bring all things to your remembrance, whatsoever I have said unto you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth, give I unto you. 
Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. You've heard how I said unto you, I go to the Father, for my Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it came to pass, that when it is come to pass, you might believe. So we know this happened at the Last Supper. Jesus knew that the disciples were going to be in a turmoil. Everything that they had arranged their life around for the last three years was going to fall apart. And he, was going, he said, don't worry. Have peace. So why? What are the reasons that he that he puts into this, this passage. Well, first of all, heaven. Okay, so um, I was thinking about this. You know, when you're a child and you know you're going to be going away on a special trip, you live on the edge of your seat. You're waiting for that trip to happen. And when I was a teen, uh, my, my uh, family used to take ski trips. And, and weeks ahead of time, I would be thinking about the trip and the enjoyment that was going to come from that. Um, and I wonder, do we do that with heaven? You know, maybe we could have a little more peace by thinking more about what is waiting for us after this time. Second thing is that Jesus is going to come back. He's promised it, hasn't he? He said, if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again. And that's guaranteed. He's going to come back for each one of us. He may come back to us um, in the clouds. He may come back to us on a hospital bed, or some other way. But he is going to come for us. And we do not need to worry whatever we face because Jesus will be standing at our side. Third thing is that we have a Holy Spirit. We have a comforter. And I love that name, the comforter. We need comfort so much in our everyday lives. Each little thing that hits us just the wrong way and makes us worry about what's going to happen tomorrow. The Holy Spirit brings promises to our remembrance. He helps us to understand things from the past that will give us strength for the future. And then the last thing to maybe note in this is that this piece is different from the world's piece. So it's not marked by a lack of external conflict, but rather by an inner calmness. And it's not a peace that comes from an inner focus, but rather a focus on Jesus. And so the harder times get, the more we need to focus on him. John 16:33, These things I have spoken unto you, that in me you might have peace. In the world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. So, we are promised tribulations, aren't we? We're promised hard times. But don't be afraid. Jesus is greater than them. Isn't that a blessing? Peace in the 21st century. You know, it's the same as peace in all the other centuries. I remember 9-11 when the the planes were flying into the, the towers. And I remember at lunchtime going over to the, the hospital cafeteria. I was working in an office across the street from there and just watching over and over again as the towers crumbled and fell. And I just felt really upset and empty and anxious about what the future held. 
What sort of a world was it where people did this kind of thing? And after every school shooting, after every mall shooting, I feel a little bit the same way. And yet, Jesus hasn't come to change the tribulation in the world. You all may have heard there's a, there's a story of a, of a king who, um, who um, was judging pictures and, um, and he, um, he asked people to, to paint pictures of peace. And um, he offered a prize to the artists who would paint the best picture of peace. Many artists tried. The king looked at all the pictures, but there were only two he really liked, and he had to choose between them. One picture was of a calm lake, The lake was a perfect mirror, for peaceful towering mountains were all around it. Overhead was a blue sky with fluffy white clouds. All who saw this picture thought it was a perfect picture of peace. The other picture had mountains too, but these were rugged and bare. Above was an angry sky from which rain fell and which lightning played. Down the side of the mountain tumbled a foaming waterfall. This did not look peaceful at all, but when the king looked, he saw behind the waterfall a tiny bush growing in a crack in the rock. In the bush, a mother bird had built her nest. There, in the midst of the rush of angry water, sat the mother bird on her nest in perfect peace. Which picture do you think won the prize? The king shows a second picture. Do you know why? Because, explained the king, peace does not mean to be in a place where there is no noise, trouble, or hard work. Peace means to be in the midst of all those things and still be calm in your heart. This is the real meaning of peace. So I want to move on here to, to thinking about peace with God uh, for just a little bit. Uh, we talk about this at communion time, um, and I wonder what we mean by it. Do you mean that if you had a lunch date with God next week, and you were going to sit across from him over sandwiches, that you would feel calm about that? Because I wouldn't. Do we mean that we are open with him about our struggles and by his power we are gaining victory? Henry David Thoreau on his deathbed was asked by a minister if he'd made his peace with God. And he said to the minister, I didn't know that we'd ever quarreled. And Thoreau had missed the point, hadn't he? By our very existence, we are restless. We are broken. We are separated from God. Augustine of Hippo said at the beginning of his confessions, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. This peace grows out of an understanding that God is good. So we cannot have a good relationship with God if we believe that he is a terrible person who desires bad things for us. I think of Abraham journeying for three days with Isaac to offer, um, offer him as a sacrifice. And we know that Abraham must have been in a turmoil at this point. He must have been questioning, what is God asking me to do? And we know from Hebrews 11 that he came to one solution. He says, it says there, that Abraham decided that God was going to perform a resurrection. That's the only thing he'd come to. He said, counting that God was able to raise him up, even from the dead, from whence also he received him in a figure. Okay? And we know that that's what Abraham had somehow come to the conclusion. 
God is good. He is not, he, he has given me this promised son. He is not going to take him away from me. And I can have peace doing what he asks me to do. The opposite of peace is fear. Um, and I, I just, you know, I see that a lot. I see a lot of people, particularly as they face death, but as they face difficult circumstances, and they are torn apart by it because they do not have a connection with God and they're afraid. The number one thing that we can do to help us have peace with God is to get to know him. It's those who really don't know God who say the worst things about him. And maybe some of it is that God is our father and we just don't have really good relationships with our fathers. So if you say to somebody, you know, God is a father, and he says, well, my, my father was terrible. What does that mean? Well, God is the father your father should have been. It's hard. Because people bring their own circumstances to this. But Milo was talking about getting back to basics, and one of the basic things that we have to be clear on is that God is good and that he loves us, and that he will prepare good ways for us, and that can give us peace, even we don't understand every single thing that happens to us. Peace with others. I'd like to, to spend a little bit more time on this. Um, I promise not to take too much time. Matthew 5, verses nine, verse 9 says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. And I think maybe we think of this in terms of helping other people achieve peace. Um, peacemaking um, is something that seems like, uh, like you know, sitting down between countries and being a diplomat or sitting down between, you know, mother and a daughter or, you know, you know, some people that are just really struggling and you are the one who just brings the right words and suddenly at the end of it they're all singing kumbaya together and feeling just great about things. You say, wow, you know, I was a real peacemaker then. And I, I imagine that very few of us have actually had that experience. Um, but I don't think that's what peacemaking is. Um, so much of modern diplomacy involves lying to people about um, who they are and flattering them. Um, Jesus told this story about a king going to battle who finds out that his opponent has twice as many soldiers as he does and decides to make peace. And this sort of peace is going to be uneasy, won't it? Um, because if he can get the, the adequate soldiers, he may decide to launch another fight. And we've seen this all the time um, in history. But Jesus' focus was not on peace between nations. He told Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight? It's John 18, verse 16. Um, and I'm not going to talk a lot about fighting in wars. Um, I think hopefully we're clear on that. But I would just leave it that it's really hard to put the Sermon on the Mount into action while you're wielding a weapon, uh, regardless of your motivations. Um, so just because we are Christians does not mean that peace between individuals comes easily. When you discover that there's a tension between you and a brother or sister, there's certain things that you can do that can help to heal things. Um, the first thing is to calm your anger. Let not the sun go down upon thy wrath, Ephesians 4.26. 
Um, and I don't know if anger is always sinful. You know, they, people are always talking about whether they can have righteous anger. And, you know, on the Internet, people have righteous anger an awful lot. It sure feels a lot like unrighteous anger to me. But it doesn't really matter. It's not a good idea to stay angry. Okay? Even if it's righteous anger, it's a bad place to live. Um, so don't go into conversation when you're angry. Don't send texts or emails when you're angry. Bad things happen. Wait until you've got a calmer head, even if you feel like you've got the high ground. Uh, be willing to take the first step. Humility means being willing to say we're wrong, um, and too often people don't take the step to bridge the gap because they think the other person is more to blame. They're willing to admit that they had some, some culpability. Maybe they didn't, you know, they didn't say everything quite the way they should have. Matthew 5, and 23 says, So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Healing relationships is more important than going to church. It's more important than putting money in the offering. We may not always be able to achieve it, but we, our goal should be to have peace with our brother. Figure out points of commonality with that person and identify points of tension. And if you're not sure about it, it's okay to ask. I know things aren't good between us, but I'm not sure why. What is it that I'm doing that is upsetting you? Use non-accusatory language. Um, and the point in these discussions is not to create a legal case for why the person you talk, are talking to is despicable. Um, so, you know, there are places where you can do that, okay? A court of law is a good place where you can, you can create such a case. But our goal in these discussions is to lay things down and to create peace between ourselves. Be willing to apologize for areas in which you've not done right or have offended, even if it was unintentional. And while you're at it, make sure your apologies are real. Saying, I'm sorry if you were offended is not a real apology because it basically blames them for being offended by the thing you said. I didn't intend it, but if you were offended, I'm sorry. Well, that's, that's not... <laughs> just don't say that. Don't say anything. If you can't say... If you can't say uh, I'm sorry for saying that, then, then don't. Um, be willing to lay things down. And I don't think we can truly forget, but we can make certain that we don't bring these things up again, um, either to the person or to anybody else. So forgiveness here is key. Um, in Matthew 6, in the Lord's Prayer, we ask God to forgive us as we forgive our debtors. Um, and that's kind of rough for each one of us. And remember that love heals all wounds. We won't feel love for a person that we are in conflict with, but we can certainly pray that we will love them. John 13:35 says, By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one to another. And I'm just going to go on and say some facts here, okay? So I don't have verses for these things. There probably are verses. Um, but I think, I think these are things that, as I've studied, I think are true. And it will help us understand where we get into difficulty. So the first thing is that conflict is a symptom of pride and the work that pride does in our lives. And on the other side of things, it is only when we humble ourselves 
that we can begin to achieve peace with other people. Um, and so often we focus on, this, the, on the symptoms rather than the disease. Um, and obviously, you know, if somebody has cancer and they're, um, because of the cancer they're feeling tired or throwing up, you, you don't just put them on nausea medicine. I mean, you can do that, but you, you hopefully will treat the, um, the cancer and, and um, their nausea will eventually get better when the, um, when the tumor in their brain shrinks. Number two, to be a peacemaker means to work to bring shalom into the lives of my brothers and sisters. The point is not simply that I want there to be an absence of conflict. My calling instead is simply to try to make my brothers whole. And this is going to require heavy doses of forgiveness, mercy, healing, and compassion. Peace will come to this world through the followers of Jesus. Second um, Corinthians 5:18 through 20. I'm not going to read it, um, but it says that we are ambassadors for Christ, that we are reconciled to God, and that we are to help others achieve that reconciliation too. And I'm afraid that we're not always good at demonstrating this peace. The world does not see a demonstration of shalom when it looks at the church. We cannot expect our churches to have peace if we are not willing to have the hard conversations with our own families and friends. So it's important to remember that peace is not simply keeping things at a peripheral level. So if you talk with people about the weather um, and, um, and um, crops and upcoming events, you, you probably can have a lot of peace with other people, but you are not truly having the peace that's necessary within a family or within a church. Um, and yet when we have these discussions, there needs to be a basic understanding that we love each other and we will hang in there through tough conversations. And peacemaking does not begin with conflict. Peacemaking begins with an emphasis on relationship, communication, and wholeness within our relationships long before there ever is conflict. And so many times we get into trouble because we don't understand this. If the only time that we are working on relationships is when there are bad things happening, it's just going to make the relationships even harder to deal with. So I read a book um, called Mending the Divides. Um, I don't know that I recommend it or not recommend it, but at the end of the book they say that if you're struggling with somebody, that it is helpful to have a 10-day, 10-week, and 10-month plan. 10 days, short-term goal. What am I going to do in the short term to open up lines of communication? Am I going to send a text or an email? 10 weeks, what am I going to do after that to follow up on that? Am I going to have a meeting? Am I going to sit down with somebody? Um, in 10 months, how am I going to continue to build on this to make certain that the relationship doesn't start heading the other direction again? Um, it's probably not always possible. Sometimes there are times when we are just not going to be able to have peace with somebody. Um, but we should at least try. That's what Jesus has called us to do. A few things peace is, and peace is not avoidance. 
So our tendency when there's tension in a relationship is just simply to distance ourselves from that person. And that's not what Jesus is calling us to do. Second thing is peace is not domination. It's thinking of Pax Romana. So the Roman Empire ruled over many countries and um, some were very small, some were big, but um, they had sort of a peace within that Roman Empire, peace for hundreds of years. And yet it wasn't really peace. It was a peace that was predicated on everybody doing what Rome wanted them to do. And in the same way, peace does not mean that I control everybody else around me. They just do what I say. Uh, maybe that works in a workplace if you're like a boss or something like that, but I don't think even there it works too well. Um, and finally, peace is not passive. It's not um, simply not hitting somebody who, who aggravates me. Um, it's actively seeking my brother's shalom. So final thing here is peace within ourselves. Um, so I do think peace with God needs to come first and if we're going to work on internal peace and we don't have a good relationship with God and with other people around us, maybe we're going to struggle with that. Um, Tibetan monks wake up at 4 a.m. every morning and meditate for an hour and then they chant for another hour. Um, and then they do two hours of meditation in the evening. And honestly, if I woke up at 4 a.m. and I meditated and um, chanted, I would fall asleep. That's uh, maybe that's why I'm not a Tibetan monk, um, other than the fact that I don't think they're Christians. But it just wouldn't work terribly well for me. Um, but I, I think our, our goal is not to, to um, empty our mind, but to, um, but to focus on, on Jesus, to focus on God. Um, peace will not come from a single event. Um, peace comes from a constant refocusing of ourselves on our source of peace, our human t- tendency is to believe that inner peace comes from the absence of stress. Um, John 16, I read that earlier. I've said these things to you that in me you might have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And there's certainly a place for de-stressing. I mean, if, you've, if you maximize the amount of things that are on you, um, you're going to be stressed and you're going to struggle with peace. Um, so sometimes you just have to cut back. That's okay. But don't, don't think that Jesus has come to just take away everything that's stressful in your life. Inner peace comes when a person knows without a doubt that they have a clear conscience and that they're committed totally to the will of God. And we talked about John 14. Um, so often we get things backwards. We try to de-stress and then we get even more stressed out because we haven't succeeded in de-stressing the way we want to. Our devotional lives suffer because we're tired all the time. Our minds wander when we try to read the scriptures and pray. And if there's one message that comes clearly through John 14, it's that we will not find peace in ourselves, um, nor do we need to. Peace comes from relationship with Jesus. I read a couple books that talked kind of an abundant life, gospel-type peace, pray and claim, and God will supply everything you need for peace. And I don't really buy this. There are plenty of people who live in poorer countries than we do, who have less stuff than we do, who have way more peace than we do. The fact that they don't have as much stuff doesn't affect their ability to have peace, either with God, with others, or inside themselves. There are rich people who struggle with 
with peace, and there's poor people that do too. And I remember, uh, uh, this is not a story, this is something that really happened. Um, there was a man named Rick Good who had a, an airplane, and he was um, flying back to, to Lima, Ohio, uh, where he lived. Um, well, he didn't live in Lima, he lived in Elida. But anyway, as he was on his way back, um, he realized... Um, as he was approaching the airport, that his landing gear wasn't coming down the way it was supposed to. And so he radioed the tower, and he did some different things, and the landing gear just still wasn't coming down. And so they told him, well, just fly around till you're almost out of fuel, and then we'll have some fire trucks there and EMS people, and we'll just um, prepare for the worst, and you just land the best you can. And so they did all that stuff, and they also called his wife and his family, and they, they watched him fly around the, the field. And um, it was over an hour that he was flying around until he ran out of gas. It's probably the long, like the longest gas tank ever. Uh, like when he wants it to just, just be done, and, and here it's um, taking forever to, to run out. And, um, and he finally landed the plane successfully. And... Um, somebody from the Lyman News came around and was interviewing different people. And they um, interviewed Ed, his son, his oldest son. And um, they said, Ed, were you worried about your dad at all? And this was in the newspaper. He said, no, no, I wasn't worried a bit. I knew dad's a good pilot. He'd be fine. And I'm sure if you'd asked his wife the same question, she'd have said, you know, I was, I was almost coming out of my skin. I was praying constantly. I was worried. Um, but this just feels like a perfect example of the peace that comes from childlike faith. Peace is something that we can have in any situation, not because the situation is easy to deal with or we are awesome, but our Father is flying the plane and he will see us through. That's enough.